I'm going to read now from Second uh, Corinthians chapter five, verses sixteen and seventeen. And uh, you know, open whatever Bible you have. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. May this word go into your heart. I do believe that through this series that we are going through, we call it Renew, uh, God is doing something very special in our church. I only have anecdotal information to that through our small group leaders and some of the things you've been uh, telling me and my own uh, story, but I do believe that that is what's going on here. And if you're new to EP or this is the first Sunday that you're here, we have been working our way through a series asking the Lord uh, these 10 weeks, how does he see us? How has he defined humanity uh, since the cross? How is he uh, looking to shape our identity in light of what Christ has uh, done for us? And in that way, he's redefining us. He's redefining what it means to be human. And this morning, we're going to look at another way in which he redefines us. He redefines us in our relationship to our sin, to our alienation, to our brokenness. That is, something about what he has done to us makes us look at that very differently in our lives. As Christians, how are we to see sin? Martin Luther, a long time ago, said that we are simultaneously uh, sinners and saints. And for, for the longest time, that described the tension in which I felt. The tension of being two things at the same time. I think that's what one of my favorite little novels when I was growing up uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are about. Robert Louis Stevenson grew up in a 19th century Presbyterian home. So he knows Martin Luther. He knows what Martin Luther was saying. And I think it's a misinterpretation to think that we're two, at least from God's perspective. We're one. But in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, he is trying to wrestle with Martin Luther's reality of two natures or two identities from a human perspective, from a fallen perspective. And, and so in the book, he says every day he's having this character, Dr. Jekyll, describe how he feels, Robert Louis Stevenson. He wrote, just give you a little context, he wrote these 80 pages, 50,000 words in six days all while battling tuberculosis. It's amazing to me. But it's kind of dark because I think Robert Louis Stevenson's life at this point had grown quite dark. He said, Every day I steadily drew nearer to the truth that man is not truly one but two. I saw the primitive 
uh, duality of man. I saw the two natures contending in the field of my consciousness. If I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically two. He called himself an incongruous compound. He said, I have a self that wants to deny itself, and then I have a self that wants to gratify itself. And we can all identify, or many of us, with that. Each keeps the other from enjoying life. He says, finally, if each could be housed in a separate identity, life would be such relieved of that which is unbearable. The unjust then may go its way, delivered by the all aspiration and remorse by his upright twin. And the just would walk on his selfward path, doing good, no longer exposed to the disgrace by the actions of his evil other. So he drinks a potion. And when he drinks the potion, this book ends this tragically. The moment he takes the potion, Jekyll says, I... I knew myself that the first breath of this new life to be much more wicked, sold to slavery to original sin. The thought embraced and delighted me like wine. Is this who we are? Are we too at war within the human body? I know it feels like that. But feeling isn't the same thing as reality. I know we feel that there's a war going on inside us to do right, to, to say no to that which is wrong, to love what is beautiful, true, and good, and to despise that which is ugly and harmful. But is that who we are in Christ? Did he go to the cross to create this agony? that only ultimately can be resolved by two separate people, two separate expressions. This morning, I I just want to give you a single principle. And from that principle, I want to draw three implications for the way in which we see ourselves, not from our perspective, not from our feelings, but from God's. How does God see me? I'm not saying that I have arrived and this is the only way I see myself. But if there's any hope for us as individuals, and if there's any hope for our church, and if there's any hope for our community, it's going to be that we see ourselves as God sees us. And we began to work out the implications of how God sees us in light of the context that he places us. And bring into line those feelings that seem so confused and contorted and at war with itself. The Verse 16, here's the principle. From now on, Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Here's the principle that's from that verse. As Christians, 
we now have the capacity to use the far-sighted lens of faith. As Christians, you and I have been given the capacity that we didn't have before to use a lens that can see things through faith as opposed to the short-sighted lens of the flesh, our perspective. You and I have been given a pair of glasses, corrective lenses, by which we can see ourselves and each other the way God sees us. And that, my friend, is so radically different than how we see ourselves and the way that others see us that it changes everything. So what does Paul mean? What does Paul mean that you and I have been given these far-sighted lens of faith when he says we regard no one according to the flesh? Before we can answer that question, we have to ask whenever we come to Scripture and there is a therefore, what's it there for? That is, it's implying something. Something is being said that is based on something else. And in this case, it's the whole context of these two verses. We didn't have it, the entire chapter read, but I'm going to give you the context of this entire chapter that these two verses sit in. And without this context, you and I cannot understand these two verses. The context of this entire chapter is reconciliation. God reconciling all things to himself, including people. Not just people, but including people. You see that in the verses right after the ones that were read to you. In verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The context of verses 16 and 17, of us being new creations, of us no longer seeing people the way that we once saw people, but according to the way in which God sees us, that's based upon the the work of God to reconcile all things to himself, including us. But that presupposes something. If God has to reconcile us, it presupposes that we are alienated from God. That is, it's not just a platitude to say that God is reconciling everything to himself and just we go, oh, hum. In order for him to make that statement, it presupposes that we are alienated from God. This is where I think Anne Lamott is very helpful for us. Um, When she says... Well, it's actually, let me give you Voltaire first. I like this point. He says, God created us in his image. This is Voltaire. And never and ever since he created us, we have sought to return the favor. What he means by that is we have been created in the image of God. That's a wonderful blessing. But the way that we have rewarded our creator who created us different than every other creature to be in his image is we've tried to make him into our image every since. That's what's alienating us from God. 
Because we're exchanging the creator with the creature. That is, to, to aspire to be like God, we know is impossible to accomplish on our own. Isn't it a lot easier to make God like us? Of course it is. And that's what we seek to do. And now that we understand that we're alienated, and that's why he's reconciling, we can look at what Paul's saying when he says, we regard no one according to the flesh. The word flesh there comes from an ancient word that we don't tend to use because we don't speak Greek, but it just simply means sarks. It's not the word for physical body. It's the word for the human condition, in particular, the fallen human condition. So when Paul says, we regard no one according to the flesh, he says, we regard no one according to the fallen human condition anymore. We don't use the cracked, broken glasses that we have as a result of being part of the human race since the fall. This is what... Calvin would say is that we tend to have glasses, but they're broken by which to see the world. Have you ever, you ever cracked your lenses and still tried to wear them? We go about thinking that is reality as it is, rather than the distortion that we're able to see through the glasses that are broken. And God is, by His grace, is given us a new pair of glasses by which to see from his perspective. You see, they they even use Jesus as an example, and they said, even we, the followers of Jesus, viewed him from this perspective, this fallen human condition. And the way that they viewed him is that they knew that he was the Messiah, but their picture of a Messiah was one who would come and rescue them from their oppressors and their immediate oppressors were the Romans and they hated the Romans. The Romans were cruel, but not only cruel, it would, they would desecrate that which was holy with special places of worship. And so they, they despised them. And not only would they despise them because they were mean, they despised them because they were not followers of God. And so they thought that the Messiah would come and kick them out, deal with them once and finally, and they would be free. This is where Anne Lamott helps us. She says, you can be sure that your view of God is wrong when he, God, hates all the same people you do. One way to know that you have a false God is he hates all the people you do. And that's how the Romans define their God. I mean, the Jews... They hated those Romans. We regard him thus no longer. If they once regarded him that way, and they no longer regard him that way, why? What's the difference? What changed for them? And the obvious answer is the cross. The linchpin of history by which everything swings. It's the one thing in human history that made all the difference in the world. That changed everything. Because on the cross... His followers then and now have to recalibrate their lenses of understanding, particularly of Jesus. He did not come to set them free from the Romans. If Jesus' goal was to set them from the Romans, you have every right to say he was an abject failure. Because what did what happened? Did he kick the Romans out? No, Romans crucified him. 
If Jesus' goal was to free them from the Romans, at the end they would have saw the cross as a scandal. But no, he freed them from a much deadlier enemy than the Romans. Sin and death. And therefore the cross was not a failure, but a huge success. How is a success if Bruce, I feel this struggle, this this tension that, that Pastor Dan talked about. How, how, how is it a success if this tension I, I live in, my experience tells me I'm still a slave. I'm still an orphan. I'm still a, a sinner. Well, that's why we need verse 17. If verse 16 gives us the principle, verse 17 goes on and says, here's the reason why. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul uses this phrase, and we get used to it in the church, but sometimes it loses its meaning because it doesn't seem all that special to us. But he says, you're a new creation. That is, we knew we were the old creation because we're like everyone else. Two arms, two legs, a, a head, a mind, a feelings, a heart. But in the new creation, we're very different. We have to ask the question again in order to understand verse 17. What is it based on? Because it also has a therefore. The second therefore. And it's because of what Jesus, uh, Paul had just said about Jesus in verse 16 is now the basis, forms the basis of us being new creation. He says, Because we have been reconciled to God through the finished work of Christ. And because God has declared us acceptable to Him on account of the finished work of Christ, His righteousness being imputed to us as if we had done it ourselves. We've been as obedient as a son. And because Christ's resurrection is also imputed to us, we're new creations. We're new. But you say, I don't feel new. That's okay, because the way to deal with feelings is to recognize them, but then educate them. Let them know who you really are. One of one of my friends in the church said there, and I did, I got this book called Lay It Down from Bill Tell, and he says there are literally two ways we tend to deal with this tension or this perspective issue. And one of them, or the first option, is to say, I'm a a sinner struggling to become a saint. If you're using Martin Luther's, I'm simultaneously a sinner and a saint. One way to deal with that is to say, I'm a sinner struggling to become the saint. And this seems to fit our experience. This seems to fit the struggle that we feel or the tension that we experience. And this kind of thinking has led to all kinds of problems in the hearts of followers of Jesus. One particular, if you know that life is a struggle to become something, you'll give it a try. You'll give it the college try and you'll try incredibly hard. And when you fail, you'll redouble your efforts. But after a while, when the failures mount up, you just give up. And you live a life of defeated Or you get really good at it. And the the only way to get really good 
at becoming something that you know that you're not is to put on a mask and pretend. And we call that hypocrisy. To pretend that you're something you're not. In this case, to pretend that there's no struggle because you have already arrived. To convince yourself that there is no longer a struggle because you have respectable sins, but you don't do any of the unrespectable sins. That is, yes, you you struggle from time to time to gossip. You struggle from time to time uh, with consumerism and greed, but you don't deal with any of the bad ones that are listed. And so you feel good about that you're not struggling anymore and you've arrived. But here's the truth about both of those directions. In both of those cases, there's no longer a struggle. One, because they've given up, and the other simply because they have convinced themselves that they've already arrived. But both have the same problem. They think they're sinners trying to become what they're not. Let me give you a second option, and I think this is the more accurate one that Bill Tell gives us. And I am a saint struggling with sin. I'm not trying to become one. I am one. And because I am one, there's implications for the way in which I have relationships with other people and myself. This is what Renew is all about. Renew is taking this new identity and letting it seep into the crevices of our hearts that have been filled with so much shame and so much guilt and so much brokenness and let it begin to heal. It's allowing God to redefine what it means to be human in Christ. That's why Paul said you're a new creation. It doesn't say you will be a new creation. One day, hopefully, when you've worked it all out, that you'll be a new creation. He says you are a new creation. In Christ Jesus. Why do we feel that tension though? Well, I think Anne Lamott is still helpful to us here. She says, you and I, we're Easter people. But we live in a Good Friday world. That though we've been changed, the world has not yet been changed. Someday... It will be. Something has profoundly changed about us that God has declared us to be saints. And yet we still feel this tension because the world around us has not changed. In what way has it changed? Though we've been profoundly changed in Christ, into this new creation, the old struggles, the old idols, the old temptations... They're still present. And they are far too attractive to our hearts still. That's why the tension is there. Though we're new creations, not everything is yet. And so we continue to struggle until sin is finally removed forever. Here's the promise. This is why Paul uses present tense in all of this presentation here. It will. And it's because he, God promised it and He's not a liar. 
you can trust. He can speak of it as it's already happening. Guaranteed. Well, then as a Christian, how am I to respond? How am I to understand my sin? As I'm being renewed, this is one of the areas that I, that, that's renewing me. And so I'm hoping as we delve in and, and begin to practice that this week and talk about it in our small groups, we can recognize that this is one of the ways he's renewing all of us. And yet, though sadly, you and I still sin. Most of us, every day. But here's the truth. My behavior, good or bad, does not affect my identity one iota. It's not changed. That's why Paul said in Romans 7, I do that which I do not want to do. It's not I who do it. He's not schizophrenic. He recognizes the struggle. But it doesn't change me partially. It changes me wholly. Therefore, a much dangerous hypocrisy is always tempting for those who know they're saints to pretend that they're still orphans or slaves. Putting on a mask that we are not what God has made us to be. So every time we sin, it is declaring we're not new, but we are. And that does not change by the good behavior I do, nor the bad behavior I do. Who God has made me is not impaired by the slightest by me. And that is called the far-sighted lens of faith. Let me give you these three impl- implications. They're very fast, and then we'll go to the Lord's Supper. The first one is, how do I see myself? I don't always see myself the way other people see me. Maybe I'm the only one that's like that, but I don't think so. I think most of us do not have the same picture that other people, either by the image we've given other people or simply because the, the image we have is inaccurate. But it doesn't matter. The antidote, the, the, the application is not to pick up how other people see you. That would be just as wrong. It is to begin to see yourself, see myself as God sees me. Because that's the only truth. That's the only beauty. That's the only thing that's good. That's the only thing that doesn't come from the flesh. Well, how does God see me? He sees me as this new creation. He sees me as what I once was has now become new. I am a son. You're a daughter. This is who we are. And any other message contrary to that, to be defined by my sin, for you to be defined by your sin, is antithetical to the beauty of the gospel of who God has made you. Well, how are we supposed to respond to that? This is the second implication. By faith, this is who I truly am. It's Christ's righteousness work at work in me. That now defines me. Therefore, I'm now empowered to repent because my behavior speaks to the old self, not to the new. And it's basically taking your mask off. Therefore, resume building, 
justifying value or existence is not needed because you can't get any greater than how God sees you. Then last, how how do I see others? I now view others through the same farsighted lens of faith that I see myself as God sees me. Christians are saints who are struggling with their sin. Therefore, I will not define them by their sin any longer. For that would be seeing them according to the flesh. Their sin will not change my view. This is what C.S. Lewis said in his book, Way to Glory, and we'll try to close here. There are no mere ordinary people. You have never spoken to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And their existence is like that of a gnat in comparison to the human life. Your neighbor is the holiest object present presented to your senses. And if he is in a Christian, he has the glory of Christ in him. Therefore, you and I must remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person, I'll say that again because you can wake up your neighbor now. We must remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk with may one day be a creature that if you saw them now in that glory, you would strongly be tempted to worship them. Do you see that your neighbor that way? The only way you're going to begin to see your neighbor that way is if you have the far-sighted lens of faith rather than the short-sighted lens of the flesh. It's the only way. Therefore, faith is not about seeing less. It's about seeing more, way more. And that's what will change us. That's what's going to radically change the way in which we keep short accounts and repent and, and reconcile and forgive and restore. Because if we could see them as they are, not as we hope they will be, once we get them fixed, but as they are, saints who struggle with sin until Christ returns and makes all things new not just us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great good news of the gospel to our hearts. Many of us came into this room thinking that we were two and that that tension could not be resolved. But now we see that we are one and we are new and that nothing can change what you have made us into. And that empowers us to see ourselves through that same long-sighted view of faith. But also that we can begin to treat one another that way. That we see no mere mortals. Only those that if we could see them in their full glory, we would be tempted to worship them. But we know who created them and who recreated them. You. And so we give you the praise and the glory for making us new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.